We're going to continue, but not finish. I cannot believe I cannot finish Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, just a few verses. And this little guy, Zacchaeus, as we said, it, it feels like months ago, it was months ago, that we started this series on this little man who climbed a tree, a diminutive little stature guy that climbed up in a tree and then gave all this stuff away and, or a bunch of his stuff away. And Jesus says, salvation's come to this house. You would think there's not a whole lot there, but I think it's packed. I'm going to ask a question for it to you this morning. I'm going to ask you this question. As we look at the story of Zacchaeus, as we think deeply about this little man who climbed a tree, are you childlike enough to climb a tree that may be right there that God's asking you to climb today? Are, are, sometimes God asks us to do some childlike things, some things that take so much humility, so much grace, so much trust that we just feel like, Lord, I, did, I thought I'm way past that, or I can't do that, or have we become so hardened to the things of the Lord that we're not even able to hear him saying, go climb that tree. I know it sounds crazy. Move to Polson, Montana. That is climbing a tree just to see what he might have in store. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 19, we're going to read, these, read this story again, and then we're going to revisit a few things that I hopefully you'll take away this morning and will encourage you and maybe even motivate you in ways that, well, that you needed today, because I need to preach to me today. So, Jeff, are you ready for this? Yes, I'm ready to be preached to. Preach to me. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, having just had this encounter with Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, formerly blind Bartimaeus, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, if you'll remember, we talked a lot about the name and your identity. Remember when we talked about that? It's been several weeks, but we talked about the name Zacchaeus. It means pure. I found that staggering when I realized that Zacchaeus, one of the most impure people that you could find under the Jewish lineage of the forefather of Abraham, forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a tax collector manipulating and stealing from his own people, had a name that meant pure. A destiny, I think, was already carved out for him when he was so impure. And we looked at that. I don't know about you, but when I think about and see, occasionally there will be some kind of American spy, uh, that an American citizen that will be spying for a foreign government. Have you ever had that? And I don't know, there's a particular disdain for those people. You know, some guy who's been part of our intelligence community or whatever and trusted with well, the well-being of my kids and my grandkids and all that and their future and our national security and all those kinds of things, and they're selling secrets to, you know, who, whatever foreign entity potential. And when I see their pictures in the paper, I see, I cannot believe somebody would have done this to our nation. That's the same feeling the people had about Zacchaeus, which makes the inclusion of this story so remarkable. Like the Good Samaritan, Zacchaeus could not possibly have been put in a flattering light by anybody other than Jesus himself. That's why people questioned it. He was a chief tax collector, and he was loaded. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. We're going to look at that this morning. 
He was just trying to see who this guy was. And he was unable to because of the crowd, and he was a small guy. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, come down, for today I must stay at your house. That word there in the Greek is really, I'm going to come, I must not just stay, I must hang out with you, abide with you for a period of time. I, we're we're going to create some relationship here. That's a deeper word than just staying. Like I stayed over in a corner for five minutes. This is a word that means abiding. I'm going to come and abide with you. And so what did he do? He hurried down and he came and he received him gladly. And I want you to remember that. He received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. And he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The very purposes for, Je for Jesus' life was to destroy the works of the enemy, of the devil. And to do that, he's going to release people, well, people like Zacchaeus, into their destiny prescribed for them before the foundations of the earth. Even at that moment, there's no way. Now, you can, get, you can form your own list now if you want to. You could create a list right now. Well, here are the people that I don't want to be in heaven. Now think about it. Maybe it's a political regime or, a, or a, some kind of social thing that you just think is so cattywampus. And it may be. Get your list. Maybe a foreign country right now or a particular dictator that's in your life. or uh, We know that maybe compromising the, your own sense of well-being as being an American citizen or somebody who's done you really wrong. I mean, get the list. Jesus is saying, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the very purpose. And if we become followers, we become co-participants with the creator of the universe to do exactly that. That is our defining role in life, seeking and saving the lost. If that is not the role of church at the red door at its core, then you don't need me as a senior pastor because part of the reason I've been on the road is that very purpose. And it is not something, it's not vacation, this and that. I'm just so happy to be out of the desert. No, I'm telling you what drives me at, and every decision that I make is always filtered through a worldview that recognizes there are people that are disconnected with their creator and they are in desperate need of a little bit of light irrespective of who they are or what they've done or how you may perceive them. It's imperative that Jesus encountered this guy because this guy, as we looked at a few weeks ago, was the worst. The worst. And some just continued to grumble. And I will not be part of the prodigal son, the older son that we talked about so deeply, I will not, I refuse to have an attitude 
to say, well, here's my list of people I don't want to be in heaven with me one day, living eternally in the presence of their creator. We harbor those things, and it's deleterious to our own soul. It really, really is. We must get this attitude. So Zacchaeus climbed the tree. I want to talk to you just a little bit this morning about this what I consider, again, something in the Bible that seems almost contradictory. It's a little bit like you can't lose your salvation. It's God's total sovereignty. Uh, and then our decisions and the bad decisions that we make. You know, we talk a lot about that. There are things in the Bible that seemed in contradiction with uh, something else that's both are the theologically sound, but they seem like they're mutually exclusive. There's something that emerges in my mind here and it is, it's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Certainly, Zacchaeus responds in a childlike manner. If you'll remember in Luke chapter 18, it Jesus says it, it demands that we become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, if you'll remember back when we were in Luke chapter 14, in the latter part of that, it says, no, you must hate, which really in the Greek there is just, by comparison, you must really, really passionately love this above your own wife and your kids and, and, and all these relationships. Uh, you just got to walk away from that. In fact, you've got to be so in love with me that you're willing to pick up a cross and follow me. And then he talks about a soldier who doesn't go on to into war here, if you'll remember, unless he really considers how many people he's got behind him. And there's also the guy that's going to build a tower. And he said, you don't do that unless you do what? Unless you first count the cost, calculate what it's going to cost you. Otherwise, you're going to start building this tower and you're going to get about halfway through. People are going to begin to mock you because you weren't able to finish. So my question is, are we supposed to enter like a child, the kingdom of heaven, and be as rash this looks to me, when I see this story, like one of the most impulsive acts I've ever seen in my life. He goes from the worst. Who knows why he wanted to see Jesus? I don't know. Maybe it's just the theatrical nature or some of the extraordinary stories that he's heard about Jesus. Maybe he just wants to, he's just morbid curiosity. I have no idea. We only know that he wanted to see Jesus. Why? I don't know. And he goes scurrying up a tree. I mean, that's a childlike thing. It's an act not of grace, really. It's an act of humility. It was childlike. But it wasn't childish. There's a difference in childlike and childish. Come down from here. He didn't ask any questions. He got down there as fast as he could. He went back, made preparations. And then all this impulse, I mean, this impulse to give half away of everything and pay four times back all those people you defrauded, chances are he was going to be destitute and broke. At least he would go down a number of rungs on the ladder, the very ladder that he had been obviously trying to climb at the expense of his own people. Sounds childish. Did he even calculate the costs? Is there any of that in Zacchaeus? Which is it? 
And I'm going to be asking you that question today. Maybe even you just came across this on television or somewhere on internet or whatever. And you came across this and you're just asking this question. And you're like, well, am I supposed to count the costs and really calculate this down to whether I'll be able to finish this spiritual life? Uh, or am I supposed to just enter like a child? And, and then we even have further admonition. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now, today, it's the day of salvation. Paul says something similar in Hebrews chapter 4 in his letter to the Jewish believing community. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In other words, act if there's some bit of faith in you. I think of Lydia, you know, that just was down there by the river selling her purple fabrics and somehow it just says God gave her some faith and she responded and she immediately went into it. And I wonder is where is the calculation of all this is going to cost you in your life? Or was that even in fact what Jesus was trying to communicate? Could you even if you did have all the details, thank God I didn't have all the details of what God was going to require of me once I, I just came in. I like, I do not want to go and be separated from God for all of eternity. I know I'm a sinner. Nobody had to persuade me of that. And I was ready to jump in and I did. And I jumped right into that. Well, that little hot tub in Houston, all those years ago, I was ready to be baptized and give my life. I cannot say that I look back and I really calculated all the costs. Which one is it? Is it childlike, just impulse, just don't be hardened? Or is it sit down and try to figure all this thing out and realize that this is going to cost you your very life? Which one is it? You say, well, I hope you have an answer for this. This is going to be a lousy sermon if you don't have an answer to this. You know, the more I think about this, the more I think that there is a simultaneity in both. I think there was an intuitive sense in Zacchaeus. He knew exactly what believing into this Messiah was going to require. If he was really going to believe that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, I think he knew his life and his worldview that he had adopted for how many ever years he had been living was going to be subject to change. I don't think that required much incredible insight on his part. If this is the Messiah, it's a game changer. Everything in my life will change. And most of the people that I meet, most of the people that I meet, they know that intuitively. And a lot of people don't even have ears to hear or eyes to see because intuitively they know that it's going to demand a radical shift in the way they view the world itself and their place in it. And you pair that with not childishness, but a certain simplicity. One of the great reformers, John Calvin, simply said, foundation of faith is childlike. It's a childlike curiosity and simplicity. And I think that's right. The foundation to real faith, the things you just can't see, 
is there's got to be a simplicity to it. I just trust Jesus. I, I don't know what it is. I, maybe, I, you know, we're sponsoring The Chosen now. Uh, if, if any of you have been watching that, we have these little things that we put in there, but we've been one of the sponsors of The Chosen while they play that. I watch The Chosen, and I'm just like, I don't, I know a little, some artistic license was taken as, into the whole scenario there, but I look at the person that's playing Jesus, and I think about Jesus, and I'm just like, I don't know what it is. I just trust this guy. I don't know what it is. You know, I think there's something in children. What do you think it is about children that are, they have a willingness just to go down a particular road and run up and hug a stranger? There's something, there's just a, there's just a kind of brutal thing. They haven't, li, listen to what, have you seen this thing on TV called He Gets Us? They play all these commercials during sporting events and things like that. On their website, it's, I thought this was brilliant. It said, it said, uh, listen to this, he approached everyone, speaking of Jesus, he approached everyone with an unending grace, an unconditional love, that seemingly irrational capacity, right, for compassion, generosity, and forgiveness. Now, I think the reason that this is so childlike, was Jesus a child in his thinking? Of course not. The very, the very universe itself, according to the Apostle Paul, is, is held together by his word. Everything holds together in him. You talk about a super intellect, forget artificial intelligence. You don't have anything, you don't need any artificial intelligence if you've got the intelligent mind that created everything that we see, taste, touch, and feel. He knows everything about everything. He created it all, and yet, there's a childlikeness about Jesus' very nature among us to take on human flesh and live among a fallen, created order, not even being known by the vast majority of people he encountered. That's staggering. It's childlike. They go on to say, a, a child who never experienced the disappointments, this is what Jesus is like, the betrayals, the selfish ambitions, present in just about every single relationship we encounter. The longer, and I, I, that's what I'm telling you, I, I, the more I travel, and I'm coming up on 60 here, it's just, just around the corner here, it's the next one I'm going to turn into, well, I'm already old man, but I, Sorry, Church of the Red Door. I know some of you are in your 80s thinking you're still in your 30s because you live in Palm Springs. But, but the fact is I'm about to turn 60 and I just find the cynicism wanting to creep in and stranglehold me. Do you know why? Because you have had a large swath of relationships in, and I realize that I also have failed in so many different relationships, let people down, not been, not been there when they needed me, all those kinds of things. And as a result, over time, you just kind of become dull to this idea of something new and profound and a new church plan or leading people to Christ or something. And you're like, I've been there, done that. That's been my experience even with Europe. And I, and I said, I was talking to somebody out in the hall this morning. I mean, it's probably 60 trips I've taken, transatlantic flights over the last, you know, number of years. 60. And I remember in the early days, it was just so exciting. I was childlike. And in fact, I hosted, 
I hosted two couples. I think some of you knew this. I hosted two couples I alluded to in one of my little things, the Goves, who were a big part of this church, and then Mark and Amy Wilson, who all, they both played the PGA Tour. And, you know, many of you know Mark. He'd won the Bob Hope here and back when it was the Hope and the Phoenix Open and all these. And they were going to be there to support Zach and Kim Johnson in Rome. And so I said, I want you guys to come in a little bit early. And they did. And neither one of uh, the Wilsons had been in Greece for something, but the Goves had never, ever even been in Europe and they landed in Munich, and then they drove a couple hours, and, and they wanted to go to Munich and drive around a little bit and come in, and then I showed them around Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and it's like jet lag didn't affect them, nothing, man. They were so fired up, just like kids, and I was remembering, I was thinking like, oh, I remember my first time in Europe. I didn't have any jet lag, I didn't think about it, it never occurred to me, I'd just get off the plane, I'd be like, oh, this is incredible, I can't, and they kept saying the same thing. It, can you believe it, Jeff? Just a few hours, we were sitting, and they live in Montana. We were sitting, excuse me, Idaho, pardon me, Sandpoint, Idaho. We were very near Montana. We were just, just a few hours ago, we were sitting in Sandpoint, and now we're in the Austrian Alps. Isn't this unbelievable? And I was like, ah, childlike, you know. I mean, I, I remember those days, you know, when you got off, and you just, you were immune to anything. I could go 36 hours and not even feel tired. I mean, I was just so much adrenaline, excitement, and all that kind of thing. And then in my 30s, it was doable. In my 40s, uh, and then my, oh, this last decade of travel transatlantically. Why? Because I had been there, done that. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's not beautiful, but it just is not. We cannot get that way spiritually. We must return to a willingness to reach out in faith every time the Lord calls us to do something, even if we feel like we're too stinking old to do that. We have to. God, you know, it's one of the most encouraging things. And, and again, I, he doesn't like me using, me using him in the sermons. I'm like, well, don't spend so much time talking to me. I won't think about you as much. But our ex-pastor, Randy, you know, I mean, the guy is just, it's, it's unbelievable when I think about his passion for the kingdom of God. And this didn't even start till he was in his 70s. And now, I mean, we planted this church when Randy, as the executive pastor, we planted this church when he was 71 years old. And he had never been an executive pastor. And, he'd never, and now he's, he's, he's got the energy of a, well, it's a childlike kind of humble, beautiful, passionate love to see Jesus made famous in this valley. I love that about him. And I love that about Zacchaeus. Have you had those moments where, uh, if, I, if I'm on a, especially 12-hour flight or something like that, you end up, what movies are there? And I usually am a documentary guy, but I'll, I'll end up watching some movies. And occasionally I'll watch a, what do they call rom-coms, you know, the romantic comedies, rom-coms. And they always have pretty much, most of them, or a lot of them, I should say, they have always the kind of the same storyline. And it's like two people that you know are supposed to get together, but you can't quite get them together. And then maybe they, and, and they're in the same town and they didn't know, like Sleepless in Seattle or whatever those things are. And they almost connect and then, ah, no, no, they're right over there. And then they, he's getting in a taxi and he's just coming out the door. And then, you know, it just drives you crazy. Or Seinfeld, if any of you watch Seinfeld, Jerry and Elaine, just get it over with. We know that there's this relationship that's supposed to happen, but it never quite 
consummates. They never take action on it. They never, they never do anything about it. And it also drives, it, we're, we're pulling for the relationship somehow, even if you don't even care about the characters. You're like, I'm pulling for this relationship to happen. It never gets executed and it drives you crazy. I still can't believe they didn't get together in Seinfeld in the last episode. They left him in jail. What a stupid ending. I'm sorry, Hollywood, that was a dumb ending to me. It drove me crazy. I'm like, you know, why do I care? These are just two characters, but something in us wants to see relationship constantly. And I don't mean just sexually. I'm just talking about where there's an intimacy and a coming together and a covenantial relationship. And I'm saying the same thing should be our passion. We should constantly be saying today is the day. It's not tomorrow. It's today. I have enough faith today and consummate the relationship you may have been putting off with the creator of your souls for years. It's time to execute on this. Don't be hardened. Don't do it. There's two scriptures that are terrifying that we're going to close on. What a beautiful way to close before communion. Two terrifying scriptures that we're going to look at. You know, what's, what's amazing is that Zacchaeus, the immediacy of his actions... It's shocking to me that he was not already hardened in his own spirit from even giving a rip about the Messiah of his people. He'd already turned his back on the people. If you're going to turn your back on a people, especially as a, as a Jewish person in that day and time, you're turning your back on everything your forefathers gave their lives for. The very story, your very story you've turned your back on. We came out of Egypt, we were slaves, we were given this land, you know, before the foundations, you know, to go in and take the land across the Jordan and all this kind of stuff. And now you're working for the, for the, the infidel? I mean, you're really for the Roman government taxing and, and even stealing from your own people? I am shocked, shocked that he had not been hardened beyond an ability to be childlike. Maybe some of you are watching and you're, you know, you feel really hard. You buy into all the, the nonsense about, you know, all the current thing about evangelicals being crazy nut jobs and all that kind of stuff. And you just kind of buy into that whole marginalized, marginalized these people. They're crazy people. And you've bought into that. But deep down, you're not ready to let go of Jesus yet. There's just a little bit of a soft spot to say, well, maybe I can take a step with Jesus. Two of these verses, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, and this is staggering, he says, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some are going to fall away from the faith, and they're going to pay attention to deceitful, well, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, my conscience doesn't work anymore. I think that's right where we are in this glorious place we call America is that we have so many people that their hearts, their conscience is not pricked at all. There's not even a sense, we don't even have a common sense of what the moral 
tale is. We, we believe in some kind of existential nihilism where everybody is just a byproduct of blind chance. We're animals. We are just slightly more evolved animals. We live as well as we feel, and our conscience isn't moved at all. That's terrifying to me. I'm surprised Zacchaeus wasn't in that camp, to be honest with you, based upon what we know. Romans 1 similarly says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. How was Zacchaeus not already given over? Being filled with all unrighteousness, Zacchaeus, check. Wickedness, check. Greed, check, check, check. Evil, check. Envy, check. Murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and all they, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy to death. They not only, well, they not only did the same, but they gave hearty approval to those who practice these things. God gave them over. How was Zacchaeus not given over? Maybe you're out there watching. I've slept with so many people, I'm hardened. I've slept, my conscience is not pricked by anything. I am... Talk about, if there is a God, and you wonder why people in our culture are so vigilant at times about there not being a God, because they know that deep down, if there is a God, they're in a bad spot. Of course, I, I, I feel this often, I, you know, it's challenging in this culture, but what was it about Zacchaeus? Something happened. And in closing, well, I'll tell you what happened. Jesus saw him. See, I just think so many in our culture, if there is a God, and many of them, I, and I hope there's not, but if there is a God, he's probably ticked at me, so I'll try to put that out of the back of my mind. And maybe, you know, in this Jesus person, I don't even know what to do with this Jesus person. He just seems like kind of a moral teacher out there that's running around. And they even feel convicted by the very life of Jesus, as they should be, as I certainly was and continue to be convicted most often every day by the life of Jesus when I put up my life next to his. And yet he lives in me. But somewhere along the line, this story tells us one huge thing about the reality of the creator of the universe. He took on human flesh and he saw the rich Benedict Arnold and the lowest of the lows in Bartimaeus. I'm appreciative of the fact that as he entered, he encountered the lowest of the lows, someone who had absolutely no leverage in society at all. Nothing had gone his way, merely a beggar. And then you had Zacchaeus over here that had, well, 
He was loaded. But he was living in a very dark place. And Jesus saw both of them. That is amazing to me. He saw power and he saw a lack of privilege that we couldn't even fathom today where Bartimaeus was. And they both responded. They both responded to the creator of the universe. So my closing question to us before we have communion is simply this. Do you recognize that Jesus sees you? So if you're a believer, my admonition to you is you may have some trees in front of you that the Lord is going to call you to climb. Go ahead and scurry right up that tree. It may be humbling. It may be outside your wheelhouse. And if it's not, it's probably not God anyway because God's constantly asking, to do th- asking us to do things that we're going to demand His, His showing up. So that's my admonition to Church of the Red Door community that already has a thriving relationship with Jesus. And my second admonition would simply be, help me not be a cynic. Because I've been there and done that. I want to have a childlike faith until I'm dead. I want to be thinking about some unreached people group on my deathbed praying or whatever I can muster. That's my hope. And there's every pressure in the world to force me into a place of being a grumpy old man. Just like I was in that airport. Cost me my sunglasses. And then the second is to you who may not even know Jesus. You think, well, Jesus has long since passed me by. Not so quick. There's one unpardonable sin, and that is the, in my view, the ultimate turning your back on the voice of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you are hardened. Maybe your conscience is, well, it's been like a branding iron, and you can't see. But somehow, today, through the preaching of God's Word, you sense that God still might have open arms. I'm telling you, if you sense that, any tiny moment of repentance, he's there with open arms. You might have to climb up a tree to see, but trees can be a good thing. Turn this over to Brother Boyland, and our we'll have communion together. Thank you, brother. That was good. Good stuff. Um, Before we get into communion, I want to share a story with you. Uh, I'll try to make it quick. Gaines and I got married in our mid-20s, and uh, we're like all of you. We had uh, enough money to make it. Both of us worked full-time. We lived paycheck to paycheck and quite happy doing that. But one of the things that we loved to do, loved it when we dated, loved it today, is we loved to go out and eat. Absolutely love it. And the nicer the place, the more we love it. It's not just little places. We like to go to the nice places. And we go and we have a big time. So we get married. We don't have much money. She has some way of putting money behind 
And then every several months, she would say, we've got enough money to go out and eat. You want to go eat? I go, sure, I'm ready. You got the money? She said, we got the money. I said, let's go. And there was a place in town called Jacques and Suzanne's, which is French restaurant. And it was on top of the Worthen Bank building. And the Arkansas River ran by it. It was really nice, really expensive. And we dressed up. I don't look all that good dressing up. She looks like a million bucks dressed up, especially when we were in her 20s. And so we'd go in and we'd sit down. And uh, they, the waiter would come and they'd bring some drinks and they'd say, oh, tell us the specials. And then they would say, are you ready to order? And I would look at him like he was from out of, outer space. So I'm thinking, brother, you don't understand. We're going to be here all night. You have to throw a net on us and drag us out of this place because we're here to savor the evening. That's the word I want you to get. We're here to savor the evening. We're not going anyplace real quick. We're going to sit there and she's going to look at me and like she really cares for me and is crazy about me and I'm going to love it. I'm going to sit there all night with her if that's what she wants to do. I tell you that because... We need to always savor this meal. Always savor this meal. You know, I was sitting there going, boy, this is going long today. And I have this word for you. Uh, I never come to church on the first Sunday of the month and think I hope he preaches a short sermon because we have communion today. I say, I hope he preaches a short sermon so we can talk more at communion. That's what we want to do. I always want to savor. I've always liked communion. I've always loved the supper. Uh, I've had it with some of you at different times and different situations. It's very meaningful to me. Usually I sit right back here and uh, I savor it. I hold it. I pray over it. I usually go first start off and say, Lord, I know how much you love me and I, how what you've done for me, and I rejoice in him, and then I'll work my way on down because there will be somebody who's suffering and they need my prayer, and I go, Lord, this guy needs your presence right now, and I want to lift him up to you. I want to lift him up to you while I'm savoring this meal before Paul's up here talking and I'm over there praying. And then I go, and lastly, I go, Lord, there's people that need to know you, and I want to lift them up. I've got a couple of folks that need to know you, and I've been praying for them a long time. They need your presence. They need your power in their life right now. We're going to savor the supper together real quickly. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, very familiar part of the scripture. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant 
in my blood. Do this whenever, do this whenever you drink it. Do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, what a good time to remember you. Your word is so powerful. Uh, your spirit works in our heart, brings us even closer to you. The idea that we have a personal relationship, that you walk with us. Lord, help us to savor everything about you all the time. Again, I pray a blessing on my brothers and sisters here. You love them. We love them. We love each other, Lord. And we pray these things in the name that's above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.